How do you cite knowledge passed down orally? In this episode, producers Driti Gupta and Alithia Ng spoke with Indigenous scholars to understand exactly how this works and how academia can become more inclusive to knowledge that relies on oral traditions. My name is FYM Fojo, and this is Unraveled. How do you know what you know? For a lot of us, the answer is pretty simple. My name is Alifia Ng, and I know cows say moo because my mom read board books to me when I was a baby. My name is Driti Gupta, and I know the earth is round because I learned it from a textbook back in elementary school. But what happens when what you know isn't from a book? For indigenous peoples, a lot of their traditional knowledge doesn't ever get written down. Instead, it's passed down through spoken word, through generations which puts them in a difficult position when they're asked, how do you know what you know? My name is Jenny Philbrick and I am Tsukotin and Sikwakam um, from here in BC. I am the executive director for, for my nation for Tsukotin National Government. Philbrick recently finished her master's in indigenous business and leadership from Simon Fraser University. And before that, completed a business degree with a major in human resources from Mount Royal University. Being a part of a university institution as an Indigenous woman was a huge step for her. I was an older, mature student. I didn't have a lot of support from my family. A lot of them went to residential school and didn't quite understand my journey or why I wanted to live this Western way and pursue a Western education instead of, you know, being home and being on the land. While she was familiar with the assumptions that as an Indigenous person, she had to be in nursing or social work to make a difference, Philbrick saw an opportunity to Indigenize business. I knew that Indigenous people have been doing business for thousands of years. And we have things such as the Grease Trail that Indigenous people you know, used to follow for thousands of kilometres and make trade for food and weapons and different types of animals. You know, commerce isn't a new thing to Indigenous people. So when in class, the prof was discussing the concept of how you have to really know yourself in order to know others, Philbrick ran with what she recognized to be a common thread. I thought, these are some of the teachings that we learn from elders. You know, instead of reading a book about humbleness and empathy and sympathy, um, I went to Elder Masikam. Um, he's one of the elders in residence at Mount Royal University. And so I sat down and talked to him for a little bit, and he was talking about, you know, like the seven teachings of Indigenous people having that humility. Philbrick wanted to interview elders, use buffalo hides, and utilize the legends and stories that had been passed down through her families for generations. A lot of my instructors, I'd say some of them were just straight out saying no. You know, you can't cite that, there's no way of proving that. Um, but then I had other instructors that would come in and say, tell me more. You know, like, how do you want to use this legend of Danzan, of, of the loon, in your paper? So while some of her instructors were open to the idea, Philbrick wasn't entirely sure how to go about citing the knowledge using traditional citation systems. Western academia is not advanced enough to um, cite Indigenous knowledge, you know, um, our teachings, or even just a legend from, from an elder. Philbrick found herself questioning. 
How do you go about citing time immemorial? This question is one that Larissa McLeod, proud member of the James Smith Cree Nation and third generation librarian, sought to provide an answer for it during her time as a liaison librarian at Norquest College. Our citation styles in traditional academia know how to cite books. They know how to cite very Western academia formats of knowledge, but they really struggle with an oral teaching or somebody explaining a story of how a particular tool would be used unless you're allowed to record it or you know transcribe it and that doesn't lend itself very well to organically growing relationships with communities this was something mcleod had always accepted as a limitation within academia during her undergrad but when she started her work at norquest her perspective changed finally someone rightfully asked the question of well can we do anything here like, is there anything you can do as a librarian? And I realized, well, actually, you know, maybe there is. Being the then liaison for the Indigenous Student Center at Norquest, McLeod set out to collaborate with Indigenous staff on developing citation templates for Indigenous ways of knowing. I kind of brought my experience as the librarian who is used to teaching citation templates and knows what normally goes into them. But then we also talked about like what kind of pieces of relationships should be represented and what things needed to be really marked clearly as if applicable because not everybody has those relationships. For example, noting that your treaty territory is only an if applicable part of the template because we have parts of Canada that are unseated that don't have any connection to treaty. McLeod then went on to make MLA and APA templates available through the Norquest Library Citation Guides and spread the word that such a resource existed. Part of this outreach included publishing a paper on the templates and getting in touch with Purdue OWL to get it linked on their website as well. McLeod's templates are currently being used in more than 25 institutions across Canada and the U.S. I didn't really want it to be... Uh, like I was a gatekeeper of this information in any way. Um, it was something that I had helped create, but very much in the Indigenous spirit of knowledge keeping, um, you know, I'm more a steward for this information than uh, the owner of it. While these templates are becoming more formalized now, McLeod emphasizes that they come after a long history of advocacy and groundwork on part of Indigenous scholars. The pieces that I created here um, are not really new. Um, there's been Indigenous scholars who have really fought to be able to include their traditional knowledges, but of course it really hinges on them feeling academically comfortable. So having something like this, you know, it's one less thing that they have to worry about while, you know, they're dealing with um, systemic racism, dealing with the academic institution not really being set up for Indigenous scholars in general. I don't want scholars to feel like how I sometimes felt during my bachelor's where it's almost like you have to leave your Indigenous identity at the, at the door. Um, and it took me a long time to kind of realize I could be my whole self within Western academia 
And it was just about changing Western academia to, to fit me a little. And citations are just one part of Western academia where McLeod would like to see change. She wants to see more community-engaged learning and support. Honestly, the, the templates I created, they're really an attempt to try and make it so that scholars are having more of a conversation with Indigenous communities. One of the tricky parts is looking for that continuity of support. Uh, it's always really hard, I, I find, when I see Indigenous programs or initiatives or even any kind of diversity or equity program be announced. It's supported while it's new and shiny, and then the people with the money or the power seem to lose interest, and it just sort of withers away. And it always makes me so sad to see because that's not how you ever want to see a relationship go. You want to see a relationship that starts with really good roots and has constant, you know, fostering until it flourishes and then, you know, continued fostering even when there might be some hard times going on. Over in British Columbia, McLeod's work is starting to affect other institutions through librarians like herself. Rachel Chong is the Indigenous Engagement and Subject Liaison Librarian at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. I do a lot of uh, liaising with the gathering place on campus. And so that's a place where Indigenous students and non-Indigenous students can come and gather and it's a safe space. And one of the main concerns that both Indigenous faculty and students were voicing um, just informally at the gathering place was that there wasn't enough space in academia given to oral sources, to elder knowledge. And I thought, surely there's something we could do about this, even if it's a small piece of the puzzle. When she came across McLeod's MLA and APA citation templates, Chong realized that this was one way to elevate Indigenous oral sources. We borrowed her template uh, from Northwest College. And then I shared it with our elder in residence at KPU from Kwantlen First Nation named Lakaton. And uh, Lakaton took a look at it and quite liked that idea of citing, liked the concept. But Chong hadn't heard of anyone working on a Chicago variant of McLeod's citation styles. Chicago citation, if you're not um, familiar, is predominantly used in the study of history, right? Um, which kind of seems important when you're talking about Indigenous people on this land. I sort of asked, my professional colleagues, do you know if anyone has thought of or is working on a Chicago citation? Is there a reason why it hasn't been developed? And lo and behold, <laughs> there was someone working on one. Together with Bronwyn Mackay, a student librarian at the University of British Columbia, Chong got to work on adapting McLeod's templates to the Chicago citation style. Chong believes librarianship is just one part in the bigger scheme of removing colonialism's effects from academia as a whole. We're one component, obviously. Um, so in, within K KPU, um, there's an overall framework for indigenization and decolonization, and the library is a subset of that. We have our own um, landmarks, if you will, on how to how to um, contribute to decolonization and indigenization. But I think a lot of the work that we do can impact the broader academia. For instance, Chong is in the process of building a collection of books by Indigenous writers. She says this is one way that librarians can uplift Indigenous voices in higher education. So one of the things I really push for when talking with faculty, when talking with students is use Indigenous voices in your work, 
whether it's your research, whether it's your course syllabi. Don't have books that talk about Indigenous people. Use actual Indigenous people's voices. Chong says even something as seemingly small as a 30-word citation helps in the process of decolonizing academia. Every time a person gets cited, you know, their, their, their writing, their publication is seen as more valuable in an academic perspective, right? And so by making sure that those voices are being heard, shared, redistributed, um, you know, we're helping uh, that process along. At the University of Alberta, students in an Indigenous librarianship class had the rare privilege of having one of their lectures go mildly viral. The lecture in question is unconventional, a 36-second TikTok video posted by user at Indigenous Librarian. Citation styles like MLA or APA aren't sophisticated enough to handle Indigenous knowledge. Jesse Lawyer, the librarian behind the TikTok, talks directly to the camera, wearing a dark blue top and earrings made of resin and porcupine quilts. To combat this erasure, Larissa McLeod, a librarian from James Smith Cree Nation, developed a series of templates to help our knowledge be understood as, as valid as books or articles. Lawyer created the video for her class, hoping to get her lecture point across without boring them. I truly thought that, you know, <laughs> the... 18 students in my class, plus maybe like a couple other nerds would find them. Other than, you know, library students taking this as a class that who, who possibly is, is interested in this. But yeah, apparently more people are interested in it than I would have thought. Yeah. Lawyers TikTok now has over 77,000 likes. The internet is full of nerds. So it was, it was kind of lovely to see. For lawyer, citation styles in academia are a good starting point for combating the erasure of Indigenous knowledge. Especially for non-Indigenous people, she says the process of decolonizing academia starts with becoming aware of issues that affect Indigenous communities. Even the process of learning through this stuff, it can feel really emancipatory, it can feel exciting, you feel like, oh my gosh, like my brain is on fire, it's just so exciting. But that, that's the start of the work, right? What we need to do next is think about action. It's not enough to just learn about decolonization. The question then is, what do we do about it? Take, for instance, the Land Back Movement. It's a long-standing campaign that seeks to put land back into the hands of the indigenous people who belong to that land. What do we do after we've become aware of this issue? Then we have to put that into action. We have to say, all right, what does that look like? You know, sometimes that looks like supporting um, paying rent initiatives like they have in Seattle, where you can pay rent if you live in Seattle to Indigenous communities. Sometimes that looks like, you know, supporting land back activities that are happening. And sometimes that looks like just giving money, right? It's like a lot of these things are underfunded, so we can put our money towards that. Academia is only one area where Indigenous peoples have had to fight to make themselves seen on their own terms within larger Western institutions. As director of her nation's government, Philbrick is leading a team of 150 to restructure and make their own government. We are one of the only um, nations that have rights and title to our own land. And we had to fight for that. We had to prove our own, our own laws, that we had our own laws and rules and regulations before Westerners came here. And that's, that's what helped us win our land um, and title. But it, it wasn't easy trying to prove that in the Western world, something that we already knew, um, but we did it. 
In 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada granted a declaration of Aboriginal title to the Silcoteen in a historic ruling. Part of the trial heard from elders who went to court and shared their stories. You know, some of them were in their 70s, 80s, 90s. Some of them don't speak English. And they were there with translators in the Supreme Court sharing their stories and legends. But according to our elders, there's only certain stories that can be tell, told certain times of the year and certain times of the day. And the Supreme Court of Canada actually, first time I think, I believe, that they accommodated that and they, they had the court hearings in the evenings so that the elders could tell their story and follow proper protocol. Regardless of the setting or the institution, Philbrick says the recognition and respect of Indigenous knowledge is essential. It really is important for, you know, not just academia, but government and business to acknowledge that that Indigenous knowledge, even though it's not written down on a piece of paper or in a book, you know, we're bringing back our, our stories and our traditions and our culture, and it's not going anywhere. Um, I think it's a privilege for um, people to be able to, to learn and to share and to hear what we're offering. This episode of Unraveled was reported and produced by Alithia Ng and Riti Gupta. I'm your host, Efraim Fodro. Our associate producer is Taha Hashmani, and our executive producer is Elena Duluigi. Special thanks to John Powers for composing our theme music, and Ben Shelley for creating our podcast artwork. Our professor is Amanda Capito, and special thanks to Lindsay Hanna and Angela Glover.